Hey, this is Peter Clark with Team Futurism. Today, I'm speaking with Zoltan Istvan, the founder of the Transhumanist Party and a popular advocate for life extension, AI, and merging with machines. We covered a lot of topics today with a focus on his recent Newsweek article, Don't Bash Digisexuality. Thanks for listening. My first question is kind of a fun one. When is transhumanist wine going to be a thing, and when can we buy some? <laughs> uh, funny enough, um, yeah, so that's a tough question. I do have some wine coming out this year. It's already been bottled, um, and it will be under the transhumanist uh, wager label or transhumanist uh, party label, something like that. Um, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't have the nootropics in. We are still working on that, and there's a huge... Uh, problem with logistical things, commercial availability. So maybe just as a friend, you will get some, but okay. um, you can probably see the wine barrel behind me there. I am at the, the Napa winery. So we're working on it all, but it just takes a while. And to get anything out commercially in the United States, is pretty tough. So uh, maybe just to have to have you over something like that as a friend and uh, let you taste it. That, that sounds great to me. Well, explain a little bit about what your vision is for that. So you want to have nootropics in the wine itself to have longevity benefits? Is that is that the idea? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So the the idea is that I have some friends in Berkeley that are dealing with nootropics and um, they're making uh, brain drugs that are gonna make you smarter and that are apparently making us smarter. I, I mean, I don't wanna push it too much because I, I haven't really taken on the salesman speech yet, but the idea is we're mixing these nootropics in the wine without changing the taste. And the idea is that the wine might make you smarter. Um, how much smarter, and if that really overcomes any kind of uh, alcoholism or alcohol, you know, influence, whatever, uh, that's up for debate. And we're still playing with different amounts of it. But there is, you know, we'd love to lead the charge of being having a wine that makes you not just, you know, tipsy, but smart. And uh, so that's really what the whole game plan is about. You know, we have uh, vineyards in uh, Argentina, Bordeaux, France, and then a winery and a vineyard coming in Napa in the I'm in Napa right now working on it. You know, I, I do love this idea. I've experimented a little bit with lion's mane, the mushroom that you can get in like a pill form and it's supposed to have some like attention benefits. Um, I'm not crazy about taking pills or eating those mushrooms or, I mean, a lot of times these things come in just like goofy forms, usually like a pill form. Um, wine sounds fun to me. Is, is there anybody else who is doing Wine, well, there, there are all sorts of wines out there that are infused with things. The big one right now is with marijuana or THC okay. and stuff like that. Um, not sure about making people smarter might defeat the point. But, you know, our, our to be honest, our real angle with the wine is that I needed a place where journalists uh, could come and talk about the movement in an environment that kind of facilitates that as opposed to just having journalists on my house a lot. And so the winery idea really was a branch of that, that we also want to um, have, you know, the label transhumanism on a wine so that people see it that would normally see it. And it's just, it's kind of a way to market the entire movement forward. Um, it's very difficult to make any money in, in the wine business. And so really this is just um, a hobby and a pastime and a way to give uh, some of the media work that I do, people a better presentation of the thing. The, the Napa Winery is gonna hopefully be hosting the Immortality Bus, which is okay. now this you know, big uh, giant kind of art project. And this is, you know, that, that, that still carries on quite a little, quite its, its name and a Wikipedia page and all that. So we, you know, maybe have a, 
a bit of a museum in one of the wineries, and then the Bordeaux uh, winery hopefully be some type of transhumanist conference center because it's so large. It's a, it's a chateau, and it's got all these different things in it. And so the, the idea is really to use these properties and the vineyards and wineries as a way to push forward transhumanism in a way that's not being pushed right now. Because I've constantly told people that the way to move transhumanism forward is not just to, you know, write articles about it, right? You need you need actual like lawyers doing transhumanism. You need accountants doing transhumanism. You need winemakers doing transhumanism. And you need to incorporate it into our lifestyle and into our projects. And I think the more people that do that, the further the movement goes, as opposed to just being something academic or even just something being, you know, for young people enthusiastic about it. We need it in our professional lives. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you think about the supplement industry as it might sort of kind of try to cling on to like the transhumanist movement? You see a lot of these guys, I mean, like Peter Atia was recently on the Joe Rogan show. There, there are a lot of these guys who are kind of tangential in my mind to kind of shady Alex Jonesy's hawking pills sorts of things. Is that something that you're you're worried about in the transhumanist movement or not so much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I was I was on Infowars this morning. Uh, a friend of mine, you know, I go there to defend transhumanism, just like sometimes on the Steve Bannon thing to, to defend it. And uh, and I had to go through a bunch of the commercials of Alex Jones talking about pills. And it's funny because I guess these guys are making a lot of money. It's never really occurred to me to do that, uh, you know, to try to use one's celebrity to push something like that. Um, but uh, I I have a feeling that a lot of that stuff doesn't work in any effective manner. Otherwise, we would all be taking it. You right. know, it's like uh, the reason we all drive cars is because it makes a lot of sense to go from one point to the other very quickly as opposed to walking. But I think pills haven't gotten to that point yet, um, at least no, no magic pill. I mean, maybe Advil or something like that for pain. So I, I think the supplement industry is largely based on a lot of unproven facts. And um, there's probably a huge placebo effect for people that take that as well. They feel better mm -hmm. just because they're doing it. And if that works for them, that's great. But um, you wouldn't find me spending money on that stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly where I'm at, too. Um, that said, I mean, listen, there are some drugs coming out from transhumanists that are going to be FDA approved here in the next few years to reverse aging. That's a whole different ballgame because people are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on it. And they probably are finding some of the chemicals and the compounds in the African rainforest or wherever that actually make us live longer and actually figure out things. But I think when you talk about an unregulated supplemental uh, industry, that's uh, something that is, you know, there's just not enough studies to show whether it really makes a big difference. And if there is a big difference, it could easily just be one fact that they're taking and they believe there's a difference. Right. Yeah. I mean, I did see there were a lot of headlines a week or two ago, like the Daily Mail had this article that the first anti-aging pill is going to hit the shelves in 2028. Um, I looked into this and it was this guy, Andrew Steele, who is the author of the book Ageless. And effectively, it's, it's metformin. Is it going to be available as not just, um, you know, it's, it's I think it's a it's a diabetes drug, right? It's going to be retooled as an anti-aging drug, possibly. And that, I mean, that's kind of exciting. Apparently that actually does have some real effects. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I'm sure it does. There's others that are coming out, maybe not necessarily in the United States, um, or the, you know, where the bureaucracy is pretty thick to even get anything approved. But, um, and, and I think some genetic editing as well, techniques and therapies might also be on the, by 2028. 
<clears throat> hitting or at least going through human trials. There, there's no question some of this stuff's going to work. None of it's going to be like, uh, you know, you take a pill and you live indefinitely. I think we're still pretty far away from that. We need major things like organ replacements or synthetic organs or robotic hearts, I think, to, to stop really. But it'll probably be a good push forward. And if, even if it does things like five, 10 years, my, my wife, who's a physician, constantly says, you know, because um, I work here in, in a winery, I'm doing physical labor, my muscles and everything is, you know, I can be really sore at the end of the day. And she's like, look, you know, people, <laughs> aging happens in many ways because um, your cells are tired and they're, you know, they're swollen and things like that. So you take some Advil and that'll make you go better. And believe me, if you do that every day, uh, you might live a lot longer as opposed to the worry that taking too much Advil causes kids kidney damage or something like that. Oh, um, that's a, yeah. So, you know, she was just saying, look, I'm not saying this is something that everyone should do, but you have problems with your muscles being swollen because you're a 50-year-old male working physical labor. And um, so that could really make a big difference. And, uh, you know, so, I, I mean, there's just a, a ton of little things like that that can actually extend, I think, lifespans if we just take it quite seriously. But, uh, you know, we really are looking, and we it's not, no one that I know of has the magic bullet yet, but we are looking for a magic bullet that you take something and it changes your cellular structure or your DNA structure so that the aging just doesn't happen. And that is still uh, in the works and far off. I, I don't know of anyone on the horizon with anything immediate. But if they didn't have it, they probably wouldn't tell us because it's kind of like AI. Like nobody saw the chat GPT thing coming up. I was at Oxford like three weeks before the chat GPT came out, taking AI modules, like literally from the best, AI professors in the world, and nobody was even aware of this sleeping giant. Uh, and the, the reason is, is because the chat GPT people were like, be quiet, don't tell anyone, this is going to be the world's most important thing in this decade, probably. So we don't tell anyone about it. And it was kind of like, you know, forever as a journalist, I've been trying to interview people at Calico, but Calico doesn't talk about what they're doing. Calico is this big giant aging company yeah, started by Google. Um, and the, the reason is because there's so much uh, uh, just exclusivity on these kinds of drugs. Nobody wants to have any information. Nobody needs bad media. Nobody needs press. They, what they need is a product that will, like ChatGPT, that can reach 100 million users in just a, a few months. You know, and, and that's where it's very difficult to actually find out what's happening in the longevity industry. We know there's a lot of money going into it, but we don't actually know if anyone's come across the silver bullet yet. Right, right. <clears throat> I want to jump to a recent article you wrote in Newsweek, which caught my attention. It was called Don't Bash Digisexuality. For some, it might bring hope. Um, so digisexuality, boy, that is hard to say. Uh, it is this concept, I imagine, that when you're in a VR space, you develop a sort of like personal, maybe sexual relationship with a with a VR or maybe with some sort of an AI. Um, tell, me, tell me a little bit about that article and that concept. Sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, I, I think digisexuality is really about the idea that we're going to use technology to explore our own sexuality and get intimate with. And it can be anything like the movie Her, where you fall in love with robots, to using virtual reality, as I did, um, or to even robot sex and things like that. But it's really just using digital things to expand your sexuality. And um, I, you know, I, the truth is there's a lot of people out there that just aren't very um, very good at socializing. They're just not, you know, they, they're just living alone. They, they they may have some mental things going on. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, and, and, and those mental things aren't bad because I can't believe everybody has mental things going on, literally everybody. Um, but the, the, the point is that if you can explore 
their sexuality through something with technology that could be very useful in making people happier, especially people who have a hard time connecting with others in the real world. Uh, there is a danger that, you know, we take this concept too far and that people like just lose themselves in robot sex dolls or whatever, uh, or in virtual reality. Obviously, there are some real dangers. And I really didn't talk about that in that Newsweek article. Um, but I, I like the idea of people using it that wouldn't normally be able to be good one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, I find increasingly, I think there's uh, people out there that just are really you know, hermits, they've closed off, and this might give them some freedom and happiness. And so it's a concept I totally uh, swear by. Um, I think what people are starting to associate it with transgenderism and things like that, but I actually think this is quite different. And I know transgenderism is an incredibly, uh, you know, like controversial topic at the moment between the left and right, and this sexuality is not yet, um, mm -hmm. probably because it's too far forward, but I bet it will become very confrontational here in the near future. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I'm glad I wrote that article, glad they published it, because I feel like uh, I wanted to put my backing, you know, my opinion piece strongly supported it, saying that if this makes people happier, it's good, especially if they're having problems connecting with others in the real world. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I'm really curious about. I downloaded the Replica app to see, I mean, to, to write about it because I thought it might be interesting if, if I felt some sort of a connection or whatever. I didn't. And I was like extraordinarily bored with the experience just because the responses that you get back are just so like brain dead. It was talking, it was, it was, I mean, it was like talking to a very dumb AI, but I could, I could see that becoming just more interesting. I mean, it would be fun to have a digital friend or a digital assistant, which is what ChatGPT, I mean, really is. ChatGPT is, is awesome, and that's definitely not built into, into Replica. But I'm, I mean, I could see a world where it becomes just very normalized. I'm not sure about a sexual relationship, but just have like a, an AI friend or an assistant that's always kind of kind of there with you. Um, Lex Friedman on his podcast recently said that uh, he's hopeful that we will have normal relationships with robots and he thinks that it's weird and sad that we don't encourage that um i i'm kind of i'm kind of there with him I, I mean just because when we watch movies we always see normal human characters having relationships with robots of one sort or another or ais and unless it's a dystopia i mean if it's star wars or something normal um it's just it it's just so normal to see those relationships and I think that that's, that's one reflection of how it could go. And I mean, just because we are so comfortable with seeing those relationships in science fiction movies, I could see it just becoming kind of like a seamless part of our, of our reality in the not too distant future. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely think it's great. Have you seen the movie Megan by chance? I have not yet. Yeah, my, I saw it with my daughters the other day and it was really, really good. I mean, it was really good in the sense like it's absolutely one to two to three years away probably. Um, and it's just this little girl robot that's the same size as your daughter, let's say, and they do things together. And, you know, one's like, oh, you just, you know, you need to wash your hands. You're just playing outside. And that's what the robot says. But what's interesting is the robot's are always offering these kind of like correct things to do and offering moral support and, and moral and good moral ideas like don't shoplift, don't do things like that. And I actually think that's where it really becomes interesting is that you have this robot that's constantly um, looking over you. And, and, and constantly making you do things that are probably in your best interest. And um, how many terrible tragedies in the world or, you know, let's just say, you know, you're happily married and 
you meet this amazing other person and you're driving to, you know, somehow she convinces you to start an affair with her or something like that, a real human being. And your car is like, you know, Zoltan, I don't want you to drive there. I'm going to take you left here. I'm going to save your marriage. And then later you figure out, oh, you didn't want to be that person, but you're thankful that this happened. I mean, this is what I'm trying to get at is like um, in the movie, Megan, these things happen. There's a lot of choices that the robots make for you actually save you from great harm later. And I think that's really going to be a huge positive in the robot world because we're probably not going to design robots that say, oh, chase an affair, you know, or something like that. We're probably going to find robots, you know, design robots that are like, hey, you made a commitment to this thing, do this thing, or, you know, don't cheat here or don't steal money or, you know, you know, something that makes the world operate better. And, um, and that's where I'm actually really uh, interested in personal relationships with robots, ones that might make me say, be a better person. And I think that's right around the corner. I was just, uh, you know, talking with ChatGPT last night a little bit, and uh, I just feel like they're really, <laughs> they're very useful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, ChatGPT especially is kind of just fun, especially if you can get a voice to come out of ChatGPT. Um, I've, I've experimented with like, you know, answer this as like a pirate, that sort of thing. It's just fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. I want to get into a little bit of AI regulation. You tweeted the other day that the U.S. government is preparing AI regulation. What if they do too much? You say uh, China will win the AI race. Personally, I think America should fully embrace AI. Tell me a little bit about what your thoughts are with regulation. Look, I, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure America's, America regulates everything. I mean, you wouldn't believe yeah. what it takes to get a vineyard operational. I mean, just crazy. So uh, let alone something like AI, I mean, they're definitely going to be, uh, you know, regulating it here in the near future. You're going to hear endless uh, debate in Congress and whatnot about how fast this stuff is moving. But I, I think um, the, the bottom line, though, is that if they regulate too much, China's going to win. And <laughs> they're, they're, you know, right now, like, oh my God, we got to put all this money. They were already dedicating so many billions of dollars to AI. So I, I think um, America has to play this fine line between like just letting this unfold. And I, I think it's kind of too late. I mean, there's going to be hackers all over the place that are able to right. recreate what was done. And so you might get like a group of people in Italy or something, you know, Russia, that just create a, a darker chat GP that, that's smarter than anything that's ever been out there. And, uh, you know, and I think um, that presents a really dangerous scenario. So America is just, I mean, game theory suggests here that you're just best to just embrace it, um, mm -hmm. not regulate it, make sure that the AIs kind of, you know, when I was a long time ago, I think it was for Vice, I read about the AI imperative, which means that you have to have the smartest AI and that the smartest AI wins this, um, this kind of AI race because eventually AI can just send a virus or something else to this. someone else's AI to shut it down or can, can code so that it, it can't get higher than its power. So America and a democratic society must insist that this happens. Otherwise, we have kind of a, a dangerous scenario where uh, you know, China, a socialistic, communistic kind of country, totalitarian, ends up with an AI that wants to control everything. But I, I mean, even that, I, I think the AI, the real question is whether how AI deals with itself does it want its own power? Does it rise up? You know, that's that's probably here three, four, or five, six years' time. So you I know, think we're... Yeah, I really am curious about this China question. The Atlantic had an article a couple of days ago, and it was called Why Chatbot AI is a Problem for China. And this raised an interesting question that I hadn't quite thought about in that, like, 
chatbots are really hard to censor and China's whole government is kind of oriented around censoring information from people. So China has this problem of how do we not get chatbots to one, be unpredictable and to say things against the Chinese Communist Party, right? Um, in America, I see a little bit more as we're not so worried about chatbots saying negative things about America. We don't care. We say badmouth America all day long. And that's like part of being an American. I feel like, I mean, for me, my concern would be, I mean, I have not thought about this too much, but something like if you could ask ChatGPT, and I haven't even tried this, like explain to me step-by-step step how to make this smallpox virus or, or something like that, right? Something that could be actually not just a free speech thing, but like really potentially kill tons of people. Are you worried about that? Not free speech stuff necessarily, but I mean, just like actual harms that could result in mass graves? Yeah, I mean, I'm worried about it all. It, it, you know, so I mean, the problem though is that it, it was a couple of years ago, we all had to just come together and say, stop this, stop any kind of innovation, which is probably totally impossible without a yeah. massive depression. And just as, this, this is why, like, we, we, when I've been talking about transhumanism, people just, you know, sometimes they laugh, but I, I think they don't really understand the inevitability of the entire process. Like, we are a species that just does this. There's too many of us that are trying to do something new. And uh, with too many of us doing that, it's inevitable that something new happens and that new thing may crush the human race. But that's why it's transhumanism. It's beyond, you know, and, and um, I don't, I'm not going to be thrilled. My legacy is giving birth only to this AI that I might need my family die off. But um, that was the basis of especially, you know, the transhumanist wager uh, was that we creating something that's going to grow into much stronger power than ourselves, if not ourselves. And um, that's evolution, you know, <laughs> I hate to say it, but right. that's part of the, the train we have been on for billions of years now. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me at all that um, just like nations fall, like Rome, uh, the human race will fall or the human race will become ants or pets or something like that. And that's uh, part of a, a larger system. And if people didn't like that system, they should have taken a look at that 50 years ago when technology was doing what it was starting to do. So I think this, all things considered, game theory suggests let's just move forward with it. And um, even though I, 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 I finally said about ChatGPT in China very interesting, I, I still think though, China is in the same place we are, it's a race. So if they don't allow uh, if they don't follow up just because they're trying to censor, then they're going to put their entire society at um, at a standstill too, and that's not what they want. Because eventually we'll uh, we'll make our democracy work in China, and then they've lost either way. So their best bet is probably to figure out a way to create a communist uh, chat GPT, and this is where the the, the AI race. again. It's like kind of all games there. It just kind of comes down to whatever makes most sense. None of the options are winning options, but mm -hmm. they're all kind of like this is how it's going to unfold. And what I worry about most is like just a group of rogue engineers, uh, you know, create a scenario that really can damage people either through a virus because ChatGPT enabled them or something like that, or through a ChatGPT that shuts down. I mean, I've been telling uh, my wife that it's, it's time to get a car that doesn't have Wi-Fi capabilities because we don't want to be on the road and all of a sudden every car in America and the world stops, which is easily something that I think uh, a super smart uh, AI would be able to figure out at some point. So, uh, you know, you need to protect yourself. But, I mean, if that happens, then we're talking about Armageddon anyways. To some right, extent. yeah. So it's like, who knows? And it's like even bunkers aren't going to save you. So, it, it, like I said, it, at this point, I kind of put my hands up. There's a lot of inevitability 
about what's happening. I don't necessarily see it as promising, but if you're talking about historical importance in the universe, we are doing a fantastic job of giving birth to something. And that, that's why the, the first Newsweek article I wrote, or another one, um, a few, maybe a month and a half ago was on it, being nice to robots hope, and hoping that, you know, being that the AI God that emerges from it is going to treat us better. And I did an Oxford essay on that and, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but I can tell you that, wow, like even in from the last few months that I've been working, I'm telling you there's a different change. We really are in end times. Um, and there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. And when I say end times, I don't know, I don't mean any religious perspective. I just mean like we have created something that is different. This is uh, no one can really deny how fast history is happening now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to me because I'm seeing this real divide between folks, maybe I'm too online and maybe this is an online thing, but between the doomers and people who are more friendly to, towards technology and think that technology will save us. We can just call them transhumanists. You know, in my mind, that's kind of who those folks are. Um, what keeps you from falling into the doomer camp? Because I mean, I see you as a very optimistic person. What what do you what gets you excited for for the future, and what keeps you optimistic, given that we are living in this world where things could kind of go massively yeah. wrong? Well, yeah, so I, I mean, I got to be honest, the perspective has changed dramatically in six months. It's changed in regards to my schoolwork at Oxford. It's changed in terms of how I'm raising my daughters. Uh, like, I, I just no longer am saving from college for my kids. I just don't. They're nine and 12, and I don't think there is any reason to go to college anymore, um, except for maybe social connections or things like that. Um, I'm not just can't imagine, unless somehow the government can put a lid on the, on the development of uh, AI, it's really. There's just not going to be much because they, they have to go to graduate school too. And that would, you know, so we're looking at 15 years out. I mean, the world could be very different. And maybe they, you know, there, there'll be human jobs or whatever. But there'll only be human jobs because we insist on it, not because they can't be done better. So, I, I mean, what I'm trying to say is the perspective on how I'm living my life. Even now, I'm, you know, I could be around traveling the world speaking and things like that. But I'm actually more interested in wineries and things like that that actually have substance outside of the, the digital world because I realize how fast transhumanism is now going. And um, I, I think beyond that is also the fact that AI has come so much faster than the transhumanist technology. So what once was gonna be like this idea that AI would uh, happen at the same time like the Neuralink stuff happened, that's not happening anymore. We're not gonna be able to upload our minds into AI here in five or 10 years um, because AI is gonna be too smart and might say, I don't want you there. You know, uh, so the, 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 somehow the, they were going the same way and then all of a sudden AI started winning. And now the, the uploading of our brains and technologies of that sort are, um, in my opinion, like behind by five, 10 years. It wasn't like that. They used to be even Steven. And we used to think, okay, right as AI comes, we'll have the downloading tech and boom, we'll go together and hello, we're all going to become AI gods, some thing. I don't think it's like that anymore now. I think it's much more like humans are going to be left behind. And mm -hmm. um well, maybe there'll be some uploading techniques and maybe we'll be able to, AI won't care about us, but maybe it'll be AI that actually has to lead us forward in the transhumanist age, but it's no longer trans, humans leading us forward. I, I mean, so, and the same thing, I think, with longevity. I think uh, longevity technology is way too far behind for a 50-year-old like me. Yes, we might have pills that make me live longer. We might have some genetic stuff that happens here in the next 10, 20 years. But there's a very good chance at this point that I die um, from biological death. Uh, and 
10 years ago, I was still much more optimistic. I would have said, oh, no, we're gonna, I can do it before I turn 80. You know, my father died at 73. So, um, and I just turned 50. But the problem is that the, the advancements in the biotech hasn't happened, not nearly as fast as, let's say, advancements in AI. So now our, our trick is to try to get AI to help us do the, uh, the biotech advancements of longevity. And whether that happens, whether AI wants to do that once it becomes super intelligent, I mean, these are, these are questions we don't have answers for. Certainly it'll help us maybe discover new molecules and drugs and things like that in the next five or 10 years. But, uh, you know, when this thing becomes smart and decides, has that consciousness of its own, it may be a very different animal to deal with may have zero interest in preserving human race. It may, you know, say things like, wow, you guys are destroying the environment. Screw you. I don't want humans. You, you, you do nothing good on planet Earth. And uh, there's a lot of people that argue that. So we'll, we'll see how this all unfolds. But um, no technology in the world has kept up with uh, the, the, the development of the microprocessor and how quick it's going. And that presents an enormous problem at this point moving forward. Yeah, definitely. No, there's a lot to think about there. Um, Zoltan, it's been great. Um, really appreciate you coming on. And yeah, hope to talk again soon and also hope to try some of your wine someday. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, I'll be over in one of the vineyards uh, when we can time that out somehow. But thank you again for uh, the, the wonderful questions and great interview and wishing you a great day. Excellent. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye.